In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now that takes a little explaining. In the 8th and 6th centuries BC, the Assyrians and Babylonians conquered Israel and Judah and scattered the Jews throughout the Mediterranean world in what came to be known as the diaspora or dispersion. Nevertheless, devout Jews returned to the promised land, certainly for the great feasts of Israel, if they could, as they do today. And on the day of Pentecost, many would have returned from all over the Mediterranean world for the great Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, also in Greek known as Pentecost, or 50 days, which commemorates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. The great feast of Israel is the Passover, which celebrates the exodus from Egyptian slavery, but it was not the exodus that made Israel a nation. I've quoted Joseph Ratzinger before, also known as Benedict XVI, because his words need to be heard and pondered often. In the Old Testament, he writes, <clears throat> in the Old Testament tradition, the decisive action in Moses' activity as mediator is not the act of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, but the act of handing on the law at Mount Sinai. For Israel is set free and becomes a free nation of its own only by becoming a legal community. Lack of freedom is the condition of being without law. I would put it this way, the lawless man is never free, he is always a slave, and the lawless nation always enslaves its own people. And so it is that 50 days after the Jews celebrate the exodus from Egypt, they celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which creates them as a nation, God's particular possession among all the nations of the earth. Our Lord was crucified at Passover, and 50 days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, or Shavuot, the Lord God chose to send the Holy Spirit to fulfill the intent of the law and to give birth to the new Israel of God in Jesus Christ, the church. Hence, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles who were themselves devout Jews, and they began to proclaim the risen Jesus as Lord and God, and they were understood then the hearers were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? On that Pentecost, the Holy Spirit created understanding and mutual comprehension among a disparate group of people. The curse of Babylon was overcome. People heard and understood 
And we read in the book of Acts that about 3,000 were baptized that day. They devoted themselves, as we are doing right here and now, to the, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is the Eucharist, and to the prayers in the name of Jesus. And the new Israel of God, the church, was born. As Father Dorn pointed out last Sunday, quoting Gregory the Great, the visible presence of the risen and ascended Jesus has passed into the sacraments, which are animated by the Holy Spirit, which is to say the visible presence of Christ has passed into us. We are the sacrament for the world, the outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace, who is Christ in us, our hope of glory, to quote St. Paul. Just as the law constitutes Israel as a nation, the Holy Spirit creates the church as the bride of Christ, his body, and his temple. No law, no Israel, no Holy Spirit, no church. The church is a divine human reality. The church and each baptized and believing member of the church is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. To again quote St. Paul. Jesus ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit descended and the apostles preached and people heard and understood and believed and were baptized. <clears throat> but others mocked and said, they're filled with new wine, causing Peter to say, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only 9 a.m. That's a version, uh, I think, of damning with faint praise, you know. <laughs> if it were 9 p.m. is the implication. And here, hidden in the story of the miracle of Pentecost, is a word that we must hear, that we need to hear. God will always make it possible for us to believe in him and to receive him, but he will never force himself on anyone. God always makes it possible to say no to him. God is good. Goodness, like love, is what God is, and he created us to share in his own being in the goodness of love and love which he is. The gift God wants to give us is himself. Therefore, he calls us to himself. He invites us to share in his life. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a beautiful invitation. Follow me, says the Lord. But everyone is free, like the rich young man in the Gospels, to say no, to turn away into the darkness. Some heard and believed, were baptized and entered into life. Others said, it's all nonsense, it's drunken gibberish. So it was then, and so it is now, and so it will be until the end of time. 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit descended, and the Holy Spirit continues to descend. Pentecost is today, yesterday, and tomorrow. 
The coming of the whole spirit will last until the Son of God returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and establish his kingdom of endless glory, which is most certainly not of this world. Every day the Holy Spirit speaks through his chosen messengers in every language and dialect known to man, and every day some hear and believe and enter into life and others turn away saying, it's all nonsense. This also means that the church herself exists in a state of perpetual crisis. The English word crisis comes from the Greek word for decision. To be in crisis means to be forced to decide. And the church, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, must perpetually decide in every generation whether she will listen to the Holy Spirit who is present and speaking or to some other spirit because, of course, there are many spirits. <clears throat> St. John reminds us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And how are we to know the true prophet from the false? John goes on, By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. In every place and time, alien spirits beckon us. Alien spirits call the church and each one of us, asking us, to abandon the Holy Spirit and to become deaf to the Holy Spirit by an act of the will. The most seductive spirit, probably, in my view at least, is the spirit of the age. And the church and each of us must decide whether we are going to catch up with the times and seek the approval of an unbelieving world or be filled with the Holy Spirit and follow the Lord into the land of the just. We are the temple of God, and God wills to be present in the world visibly in and through us. And we are told that over and over again in the Gospels and in the epistles of the New Testament and throughout the history of the church. But it's difficult to hear and it's difficult to grasp it's much easier for me to believe that the bread of the Eucharist becomes the true body and blood of Christ than it is for me to believe that Jesus is dwelling in me through the power of the Holy Spirit and that I am the visible presence of Christ in the world as you are. Some time ago, I came across a figure, a very interesting woman, a Dutch Jewess named Etty Hillesum. She perished in 1943, the year of my birth, in the infamous death camp of Auschwitz. She was a Jew by birth. She had no real religious instruction in Judaism or in Christianity, but she read the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, over and over again. And she was studying Russian, and she read the great 19th century Russian authors. And through some mystical intuition, she grasped something of the mystery 
of the indwelling of God, which has always helped me to understand what Christ and the apostles are talking about when they speak of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I want to share a prayer of hers with you. A prayer, by the way, set down on paper and offered to the Lord in the midst of all the turmoil of the Second World War and the terrible fate that awaited her and her family and all the Jews around her. And now her prayer. You cannot help us, but we must help you and defend your dwelling place inside us to the last. There are, it is true, some who even at this late stage are putting their vacuum cleaners and silver forks and spoons in safekeeping instead of guarding you, dear God. And there are those who put their bodies in safekeeping, but who are nothing more than a shelter for a thousand fears and bitter feelings. And they say, I shan't let them get me into their clutches, but they forget that no one is in their clutches who is in your arms. I'm beginning to feel a little more peaceful, God, thanks to this conversation with you. I shall have many more conversations with you. You are sure to go through some lean times with me now and then when my faith weakens a little. But believe me, I shall always labor for you and remain faithful to you, and I shall never drive you from my presence. Amen. That tells us something of what it means to be what we are called to be, temples of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.